0: I also think that one of the lessons that we've learned going back to the earliest moments in Latino politics is, is really about not simply speaking to Latino voters as Latinos, but as people who are uh, and, and connected to other Latinos around the country, that is not simply speaking to them as members of national blocs, but rather as members of local communities that themselves often contain multiple Latino populations, living in close proximity to other minorities, and working people who are eager to have a a voice in the system.
1: That was Benjamin Francis Fallon. His new book, The Rise of the Latino Vote, A History, details more than half a century of Latino political power in the United States and challenges the common characterization of this very demographic as a sleeping giant in national politics. My conversation with him follows in a moment. But first, we'll hear from members of the Commonwealth staff, led by Director of Audience Development, Milton Bravo, who talk about their recent trip to El Paso, Texas, where they joined activists, academics, students, members of the clergy, and many Men and women religious for the Jornada por la justicia, a teach-in and nonviolent demonstration at the Mexican border. I'm Dominic Preziosi, and this is the Commonweal Podcast. <laughs>
2: Well, hello everyone. This is Milton Javier Bravo, Audience Development Director at Commonweal, and we're here with
3: Issa Simon, Editorial Assistant. Kate Lucky, Managing Editor.
2: Griffin Olenek, Assistant Editor. Well, thank you everyone for joining us. We wanted to take a moment and discuss what we experienced this past weekend, October 11th through the 13th, where we saw um, a large number of Catholic faith communities from throughout the United States take part on a pilgrimage to El Paso, Texas have an educational experience filled with workshops and plenary sessions, as well as a binational action at the border between El Paso, Texas, and Ciudad Juarez, Mexico. You know, the gathering from all these Latinx Catholic leaders was really prompted by the increased hate rhetoric, violence, and ongoing militarization of Latinx communities, particularly around the borderland. This was a group of Catholic Latinx organizers, labor leaders, theologians, and activists, which was hosted by Hope Border Institute. The gathering was in response to the inhumane treatment of migrants and refugees at the border. It was also a response to the racist, xenophobic, and supremacist ideology which led an individual to drive 10 hours to murder 22 Latinx individuals uh, at the border community. The gathering was also a response to the detestable treatment of migrants uh, in cruel, inhumane conditions at detention facilities, the separation of families and children, policies such as Remain in Mexico and metering, which has essentially trapped asylum seekers. A lot of us from Commonweal were lucky enough to be present during that weekend. So what I would like to do now is kind of turn it over to our guests and ask Issa, which workshop and what was your sense and your experience of the weekend that really stood out to you?
3: Thanks. So The panels were about all sorts of different topics, so some were anti-racism, some were about immigration, but one that was really compelling to me was about local issues, and in particular, in Barrio Chamizal, in El Paso, there's an organization called La Mujer Obrera, the Worker Woman, and it has an offshoot, Familias Unidas, which is really focused right now, in particular, on a local schooling issue, which is the closing of Bell School. Then, in turn, the kids at Bell School are being sent to another elementary school, which is right outside a toxic waste dump, basically. It's a recycling facility for batteries and for factory equipment. And the playground is right outside of this giant dump. And the motivation for sending these kids here, inadequately prepared because they didn't have the buses to send them, they don't have good crosswalk labeling, there's giant semi-trucks parked everywhere, there's lead levels in the playground soil that are really high... So the motivation for doing this is that it's going to save $1 million. And I was just so struck by thinking about the scale of this, this $1 million that will be saved at the expense of these children, and how, in contrast, one portion of the wall is going to cost $275 million to build, and how the Trump administration is appropriating $4 billion, or trying to appropriate $4 billion dollars. For this monument to hate and white supremacy that is completely ineffective, that there already exists a fence along the border, we saw it, we drove by it. And so to say, the physical and mental health of these kids isn't worth $1 million, but, you know, this border wall is worth hundreds of times that and thousands of times that it's worth $4 billion to me really struck me when I got down to those particulars and got to learn about Bell School. And so I'm grateful to Yilda Villegas and the Díazlan for leading that particular workshop and really bringing my attention to that.
2: Really powerful stuff. Thank you, Isa. Kate, what stood out to you from the weekend and the experience at El Paso?
4: Yeah, I think two things. The first is related to something that Isa said about driving along the construction of the wall and also the fencing that exists, the armored vehicles, the soldiers. I think all of us at the office were struck by how important it is to visit the places we're writing about whenever we can, not only to be able to see how border policies are being enacted in structures and with military presence, but also just to see the landscape that this community lives on. I think many of us were just struck by the vastness of the desert, the different cacti that we saw, the blooms of color, whether in the flowers or in the sunset. And Sort of the hope and beauty inherent in that landscape, the vast expanse of sky. You know, all of us live in or around New York City. So that was refreshing to us, but also I think gave us a sense of what the community who lives there loves about this place and loves about the borderlands and how that extends across the border in a very obvious way sky and mountains and natural features. And we talked a lot at the conference about the migratory patterns of animals that are interrupted by the wall. So seeing how nature interacts with sort of man-made institutions, I think was moving for many of us. The second thing I'll say is about our staff and sort of the experience we had of being there together as a predominantly white group of individuals. I think that the conference did an excellent job of sort of calling many of us to account, myself included, and really gave us an opportunity to sit in the sin of racism, to think about Institutionally, how we can do better personally, to reckon with current and past injustice. And the workshop was so effective in that it allowed for us to sit in that sin while at the same time really welcoming us into the community, which is something I don't take lightly. We were, you know eating enchiladas together in Pendulce and listening to a mariachi band and the conference organizers just did a wonderful job of being so hospitable to us even as they called the communities around them to greater, advocacy and greater solidarity. And so we felt really called to task in the way that I think the church should call communities to task. It was a great example of church discipline in a way, and that was something that was good for our staff to experience together as well.
2: Thank you, Kate. Really powerful. Part of the that community is the presence of Hope Border Institute, which hosted the uh, teaching and action at the border. Hope Border is in charge of overseeing a lot of this work on the ground, helping asylum seekers apply for asylum, getting them through that whole process. And Griffin, you were uh, part of the small delegation that accompanied three families, 15 Mexican nationals seek asylum at the point of entry on the bridge between Ciudad Juarez in El Paso, Texas. Could you describe that
5: experience? So as on the El Paso side, there was a group of us protesting the administration's policies, but also um, participating in what they called a Jericho walk. That is recalling the famous story when the Israelites circled Jericho until the walls came down. So they were calling on El Paso for the walls to come down. And then there was another group of people that crossed over the bridge, met with asylum seekers, got to listen to their stories. Many of us conversed in English and Spanish with people who were fleeing real slaughter, people who were afraid for their lives and you could see in their faces that they'd been traumatized. You could see that they hadn't eaten some of them in days. We brought them food, but you, all, you could also see that they had organized among themselves. And I thought that was really moving. It's something that Professor Luis Fraga, the director of the Institute for Latino Studies at Notre Dame pointed out, that they aren't just a mass of people clumping at the border. They're people that have organized themselves. They have a legal right to request asylum. This is a right that's being denied illegally by the Trump administration. Uh, And so it was all unfolding in real time as we were participating. But what I found so moving was that I and and you, Milton, had the privilege of actually walking in the line of 15 asylum seekers as they made their way to the U.S.-Mexico border to present their documents and their demand for asylum. Many of them were from the southern states of Oaxaca and Michoacán in Mexico. They themselves asked for asylum. We were just there to witness. And so I, in my life, had never seen such overt racism from and provocation from Customs and Border Protection. You know, they would say things like, where's the bishop asking for Bishop Mark Seitz of El Paso? Or is anybody here to cross legally? As they were breaking the law, so yeah, it, yeah it, it was a it was a disheartening experience, but a powerful one. as we waited on that bridge as the sun set, and you could see the moon and the the, the desert sky and the beauty of it, as Kate was mentioning, was beginning to shine. all of a sudden, after about thirty minutes of silence. You know, more CBP officers came up and they agreed to hear the asylum claims. And because the asylum seekers were Mexican nationals, once they've been, once their request has been heard, they cannot be sent back to Mexico. So they crossed over. So it was this great moment of openness and grace and hope and I think all of us were just silent and shocked. And so it was very hopeful but at the same time it was in a way really distressing because as soon as they got to the other side, they were taken into custody and we could hear them being yelled at in Spanish by more CBP officers, telling them they had to strip down to one layer of clothing. They had to remove all of their possessions and their shoelaces. They could have nothing. And they were going to spend two to three nights in the yeleras, the, uh, the jail cells that, right there in the border in El Paso. And, you know, as we're recording this on uh, Wednesday, I spoke with Hope Border Institute and they've told me that they still haven't been released yet. So you as know, of, as of today, as of today, yeah. So they're expecting that either today or tomorrow they will be released into a, a Catholic house in El Paso. So we we hope and we pray for their you know for their safe arrival at this house. But it just it alerted us all, I think, to the to the injustice, and that's what this was all about. Mm-hmm. You know, for us to see injustice firsthand, to witness it, and eventually to take a stand against it. Yeah, absolutely. I think,
2: you know, one of the the things uh, that stood out to me uh, was uh, on the opening night of this. Jornada, this time together, Monsignor Arturo Bañuelas saying that it's not simply to accompany someone, you need to also, uh, the, the whole notion of solidarity is to carry the the pain and, and the weight of this moment and help the other person in their journey, in the pilgrimage. And so I think it was just a wonderful a moment from us to be there, to be part of that, to be with the El Paso community, to witness, to bear witness, but also to provide. A sense of, um, you know, ask the question: Where do we go from here, and how do we, how can we continue helping, you know, those our brothers and sisters at, at the border. And for me, one of the most powerful uh, moments, I think, in addition to walking with the asylum seekers uh, and at the point of entry, was also experiencing the signing of Bishop Seitz's letter against uh, racism. And in light of the particular context of the massacre at El Paso, and uh, we received one of the signed copies during Mass on Sunday before the end of the Jornada. And I think that that was really powerful in the context of the work that we do here at Common Wheel as journalists in search for truth and the level of responsibility that that means uh, in our day-to-day work. And so that was certainly uh, was certainly moving. And so I just wanted to thank uh, Isa, Kate, and Griffin for having this conversation with us. Uh, and, and thank you until next time. All right. Thank Thanks, you.
5: Milton. <laughs>
6: Support for Commonweal comes from Emory University's Candler School of Theology. Candler offers a master's degree with a focus on Catholic studies, preparing leaders and scholars for ministry in the Catholic Church and research in the Catholic intellectual tradition. Benefit from the resources of top ranked Emory University in Atlanta, one of the most diverse and rapidly expanding centers of Catholicism in the country. Build ministry skills through hands on training in parish, school, hospital, or nonprofit settings. Prepare for doctoral studies with world-renowned faculty. Learn from top scholars and guest lecturers through Candler's Aquinas Center of Theology. And take advantage of generous scholarship support. 100% of Master of Divinity students received scholarships last year. For details, log on to candler.emory.edu slash commonweal podcast.
1: Is the sleeping giant about to awaken? That question informs Benjamin Francis Fallon's book, The Rise of the Latino Vote, A History, which examines the elusive idea of a unified Latinx constituency while detailing how activists, laborers, and local officeholders of Cuban, Mexican, Puerto Rican, and other heritages have nevertheless influenced American politics for decades. I spoke with him recently about the book and how perceptions of the Latino vote may factor into the 2020 election. Ben, thanks for being here with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, so I took a good long look at your book, and I think it's a really pretty fascinating piece of work. It covers about 100 years of Latino American political and electoral history. And it's a really fascinating story. And you take pains to document the complexity of that history. Could you talk about some of the things that might challenge assumptions about this group of voters, that challenges the idea of the sleeping giant that we always hear about, Uh, perhaps beginning with the fact that the giant is really kind of a multifarious collection of ethnically and geographically and even philosophically disparate groups? Sure.
0: You know, to talk about the Latino vote as a sleeping giant tends to assume that there is a natural commonality of interests among the members of the nation's Latino populations, and, and and implies that there's a sort of sameness among a group of people who really possess extraordinarily diverse histories. When you talk about the Latino vote, you talk about the communities that most exemplify it. You can talk about rural northern New Mexicans who claim Ancestry in the United States to 16th century Spanish explorers, Puerto Ricans who migrated to the South Bronx in the 50s, Cuban exiles in South Florida, Salvadoran refugees in Washington, D.C., who came during the 1980s. Talking about that Latino vote, starting with the assumption that's common that that all these folks really belong to, first and foremost, a national Latino community, we'll call it a Latino community, Hispanic community, Latinx, by whatever term. And implying that the truest exercise of Latinos' power is as members of that group, that assumes a lot, I guess. And it's also the case that it's a relatively recent assumption. Throughout most of the 20th century, for example, uh, there was much more what you might call politics by Latinos than Latino politics. Because those communities that i talked about, some of them were not even really present in the United States. And those that were, were, were quite separated. The separation that they experienced nurtured distinct ethnic orientations and political outlooks. Even within the Southwest itself, ethnic Mexicans in California, New Mexico, and Texas often referred to themselves by differing ethnic terms, Mexican-Americans, Spanish-Americans, and Latin-Americans, respectively. So they didn't always see themselves as belonging to the same community. And they were quite different still from the East Coast Puerto Rican populations and certainly from the Cuban exiles who came in the wake of the revolution in 1959 and after. On the other hand, it's also worth appreciating that the idea of the Latino vote as a kind of natural expression of an ethnic community identity obscures a great deal of hard work that went into bringing these diverse communities in concert, at least as much as it happened. A lot of creative organizing across community lines, across national origin lines, a tremendous amount of personal friendships and alliances built, and new organizations and institutions that were built to try to encompass, uh, try to even define the shared interests, cultures, and outlooks of all of these different people. And these efforts really did alter the terrain of American democracy, the compositions and strategies of both the major parties, produced lawsuits and legislation that broadened the struggle for voting equality, and saw a series of hard campaigns to elect and influence U.S. presidents, really from Kennedy to Reagan and beyond, that created this thing called Latino politics
1: in the United States of America. You know, actually, you raised something even in in your response there, and it pertains to the title of the book itself, which you call The Rise of the Latino Vote. and And I ask why this title, because... It seems the central thesis of of your book that the national Latino voting bloc is kind of this illusory notion, and and it seems the title itself seems almost in tension with the idea of a rising vote. Yet you you indicated even some of your remarks just now why you might think of it as a rising Latino mm-hmm.
0: vote. Yeah, And the book is frank about the obstacles that were experienced by those who attempted to assemble this kind of national voting bloc, that however it looked from the outside, consisted of people who first saw themselves as members of distinct ethnic or national origin communities, i.e. Mexican-American or Puerto Rican or Cuban, and who had strong regional identities as well as New Yorkers or Angelinos or folks from San Antonio or South Texas, and who didn't, as a result of their very different political socializations, didn't always share ideological orientations or, or uh, common ideas about what was appropriate political strategy, time has shown that, that the notion of Latinos acting sort of as 90% or more in favor of like a single candidacy, that's, that's a kind of a hard thing to imagine with a group as diverse as that. Now, that being said, even if, if, if that's your yardstick, then fair enough. And that was the yardstick that many people uh, who originally sought to create a Latino vote thought, you know, that they, that they could act as one and define the direction of American politics. Even short of that, the creation of the Latino vote was a pretty remarkable effort. Um, a fairly small cohort of committed activists, elected officials, convinced both parties and the nation to regard those very diverse communities, at least rhetorically, as one and, and to see them as the kind of the key the linchpin to winning the presidential race, and, and many other races in national politics. If you think about where these constituencies are, for example, in 1960, the Mexican-Americans and Puerto Ricans are the lone ones voting. Uh, Cuban's not really in any big numbers. They're locally oriented. They don't have very much organizational or personal ties connecting their communities. The federal government considered them, measured them through the census as really subsets of the nation's white population. Nobody knew what their collective condition really was. And so winning that recognition was an extraordinary thing. And within two decades, Hispanics, as they were then widely called, were, were a pillar of multicultural America. Presidents declared National Hispanic Heritage Week and counted Hispanic affairs advisors on their staff. Both major parties had caucuses or assemblies devoted to Hispanic interests. Congress called uh, Hispanics or Spanish origin Americans, a language minority protected by the Voting Rights Act. There was now a Congressional Hispanic Caucus, a National Association of Latino Elected Officials. So many other parts of the society, businessmen founded national Hispanic Chambers of Commerce. The census began to ask a question of all of Americans, and now we all know it on the census if they are of Hispanic or Spanish origin. This was the product of a really remarkable effort of political activists to amass power. Within the party structures, I think it's really important to appreciate that in the present day, what we take for granted, uh, particularly from the Democratic Party, as being willing and committed to the cause of minorities, was not a certain thing throughout the period I describe in the book, even into the late 1970s. There was a sense among many Democrats that was sort of enough was enough with minorities, and that the Black movement. The party had accommodated the black movement uh, and and to a degree had accommodated women's movements. But do we really need folks within the party active at least? Do we need to recognize this group as a permanent minority or might they be something much more like Italian-Americans or Poles or other, um, you know, largely uh, what we call white ethnic populations? And Latinos forced the Democratic Party to treat them as a permanent minority. And it's at least the nominal equals of African Americans. And some of this process was so impressive because it involved convincing other Latinos that they belonged together. And, you know, I could talk about that uh, a bit if you like. There's a, a great example that I found that I talk about in the book is this thing called the Unidos Conference. It happened in 1971. It was a uh, Two congressmen, one from Mexican, one Mexican-American from Los Angeles named Edward Roy Ball. And the other, Herman Badillo, who's was the first Puerto Rican congressman elected from New York and from the U.S. mainland. And they invited 250 people to the D.C. area to plan to build a national, what they called, Spanish-speaking coalition. And they got 1,200 people converging on a small motor inn in northern Virginia who all wanted in on building this first national coalition of Mexican-Americans and Puerto Ricans. And they ran an incredible spectrum of leftists, radicals, but also social workers, university professors, leaders of the Chicano movement and the Puerto Rican left are in the same room with mainstream liberal elected officials, rural and urban interests, all drawn together around the possibilities of uniting to be the balance of power in American politics. And they're meeting for the first time. They're debating and learning from each other. And they're socializing together in the smoky hotel. And they're trying and and mostly succeeding at establishing a vision, a policy vision, uh, that would reflect their commonalities. And, And it was this sort of hard work that I think is so impressive and was central to convincing party elites, especially, that there was a force out there that might just be harnessed So I think it was that hard work among Latinos as well to create the image of something and to create trust among themselves that that really helped create the Latino
1: vote that brought about its rise. And I wonder if that relates to something I wanted to bring up with you, too, that maybe that sort of predates this gathering that you just described. And you spent some time in the book, I think, talking about how Latinos have influenced politics in other ways long before maybe they came to the attention of the two major – the elites of the two major parties. But I think you discuss uh, how you know efforts in uh, harnessing the power of labor or by holding local and state offices or through community activism, this also planted some of the seeds and really sort of nurtured this notion of the Latino vote.
0: Absolutely, uh, you know, Latinos were only visible from the perspective of the national parties because of the hard work they put in at the local and state level, and and, and because of the the different and eclectic, creative organizing that they did. The, the makers of the Latino vote, who eventually became congressmen, I mentioned Edward Royball and Herman Badillo as well, uh, people who. Who became national figures really cut their teeth in city council races or running for district leadership in the Democratic Party. But what's important is that they were outsiders, sure, but not numerically dominant enough as Latinos or as Mexican-Americans and Puerto Ricans to command power on their own. And that circumstance taught them to be skilled coalition builders. It was never enough in Los Angeles or San Antonio or Harlem to win only Latino votes. These local... Activists and elected officials had to reach out to other minorities that lived near them. African-Americans, Japanese-Americans, Jewish-Americans They had to reach out to supportive clergy. They had to build multiracial coalitions that addressed common concerns. And they often did so in concert with organized labor. And it's together that these combinations of labor, liberal and minority interests really uh, posed a powerful challenge to the Democratic Party's status quo. A famous example in Los Angeles is the Community Service Organization, which I talk about in the book as putting a lot of these pieces together. People think about Los Angeles now as a sort of multicultural metropolis, but Latinos were only, and again, mostly Mexican-Americans, were only 8% of the population of Los Angeles in 1950, African-Americans 9%, and they had long been shut out of representation. And the CSO really tried to remedy that through mass-based organization rooted in the neighborhoods of East Los Angeles. The activists committed themselves to almost nightly house meetings to enlist average people in the neighborhoods to develop a community empowerment agenda. And part of that was massive voter registration campaigns. And it was that sort of Los Angeles area coalition effort that involved Jewish voters, Mexican-American voters labor and others, African-American voters, that elected Edward Roybal, who was the motive force in making a Latino vote, founder of the Congressional Hispanic and other organizations to the Los Angeles City Council. This is 1949. There had not been a Mexican-American sitting on the Los Angeles City Council for seven decades at that point. So similar coalitions like that were at work in other cities. And leaders like Roybal forced civil rights ordinances onto the municipal agenda, Others led direct action campaigns to integrate schools. They talked about police brutality in the 40s and 50s, and they forced the Democratic Party at the local level to take them seriously. And smartly, they also were focused on bread and butter issues. They knew that they needed streetlights and sidewalks and potholes fixed in their neighborhoods. So that combination of looking out for civil rights and liberties, neighborhood concerns, and fighting for a working class economic agenda was sort of the foundation of a lot of the Latino political activism that would bubble up to the national level.
1: That's fascinating. And you've touched on a lot of sort of uh, what was happening geographically across the nation, but I I almost want to switch a little to a portion of the book that I found particularly interesting. And it's the chapter on the new Hispanic conservatives of the 1970s and 80s. And this is relatively recent history, but I think in this day and age, we tend to sort of perhaps forget about it or not keep it in mind enough. And you write of the role of the Republican National Hispanic Assembly. And one of its key players, Benjamin Fernandez, was the son of Mexican immigrants and a corporate executive uh, who even mounted a GOP run for president in 1980. And he got favorable attention from no less than the columnist George Will. And I wonder if you could talk about some of the aspects of that era in conservative and Republican politics and the differences between then and now in the context of the Latino vote.
0: Sure. Ben Fernandez is a fascinating figure. And, and again, the first uh, real serious Latino candidate for the nomination of any major party when he ran in 1980 uh, as a Republican. Born, His story was a, of being born in a boxcar in the Chicago area, son of impoverished Mexican immigrants. And he told this, what he called his Horatio Alger story of rising from nothing, from a neighborhood where everyone was in jail or, or without an education or otherwise, uh, continuing on a bad road, he moved to California and had this sort of sunbelt experience becoming a college graduate and then later a manager of corporate America. And Fernandez got his start in politics through really through Richard Nixon in a lot of ways. Fernandez as a Californian by then was exemplar of the type of Mexican American that the Republican Party was actively courting under Richard Nixon and then under the head of the Republican National Committee, George H.W. Bush of Texas. It was the GOP's vision to create a sort of ethnically alternative, uh, ethnically authentic middle class politics that aligned what it meant to be a good Mexican-American, especially with ideas of upward mobility and individualism. And that, that really would be, and this was crucial for the time, supported by government. So the Nixon administration put Fernandez in charge of a minority business development group called NADA, the National Economic Development Association. He was in charge of basically arranging federal funds and technical assistance to Latino entrepreneurs and uh, would-be bank presidents and the like. And the Nixon administration as well sought out men like Fernandez, especially through policies of affirmative action. It was the stated intent of the Nixon administration to bring sophisticated managerial talent, especially, but other white-collar workers as well, into the federal workforce from, especially, again, Mexican America. Even bilingual education as well is another program supported by Republicans in the day, at least in rhetoric, as a means of allowing individuals to rise in the society. So it's a very active and very uh, ethnically conscious role for Republicans in pushing pushing public policies to benefit this particular group as a means of building a constituency. Well, so I think there's a challenge, and some of it's personal, and some of it's ideological, and, and some of it's both. The George H. W. Bush and Richard Nixon aligned Mexican Americans in the Republican Party um, are brought in under this particular set of arrangements where the government will be actively in support of uh, the middle classes of their communities. By the time of the Reagan revolution, there's a different offer on the table. And the offer on the table is that you back Ronald Reagan, and you back the conservative movement, or you are shut out of influence. And this was disturbing and alarming to the faction of Republicans that had been brought in under the old arrangement. And they tried their best to adapt and to play the game as long as they could. But they sort of changed their names. They called themselves the New Hispanic Conservatives, and they changed their rhetoric. And they tried to talk about how to be Latino was to be in favor of the small businessman and against the government regulator and things of that nature. In other words, they tried to make Hispanic politics and Reaganite politics seem identical. But that wasn't uh, wasn't really ever enough for the hardcore conservatives in the Reagan administration. They ended up finding ways of isolating and pretty much dumping that earlier cohort of Mexican-Americans associated with Nixon and Bush and replacing them with very conservative Cubans who could be expected to support the conservative movement's vision of where Hispanics fit within the United States as a socially conservative, i.e. anti-abortion, pro-school prayer, pro-aid to parochial schools, and aggressively interventionist foreign policy constituency, particularly with respect to the Western Hemisphere. So there's a sort of a wholesale swapping out of who the empowered Latino Republicans are as the new president uh, moves to align Latino politics in the Republican Party with his mm-hmm. ideological
1: disposition. Yeah. So even there, we're sort of seeing signs of how really uh, there isn't necessarily a sleeping giant. Already, you know, portions of the Latino vote, if we can call it that, are, are being cleaved off or being played off against one another.
0: This is a key feature of how it worked. And and maybe some of the work that the idea of the sleeping giant does is it it implicitly blames Latinos for not all thinking the same, which is not something we would really apply to Many other constituencies. Um, People are allowed to have diverse interests, and they're not. It is not a betrayal of of one's group or one's ethnicity to have have different opinions. And given the distinct socializations and of these different populations, Mexican Americans, Puerto Ricans, Cubans, especially, and then all of the new populations who have come to the fore since then. um, Again, it's not it's not terribly surprising. And I think it's it's a mistake to, again, put blame. On uh, or, or imply that the group is not living up to some destiny when in fact it has very real reasons to have a diversity of opinion within
1: it sure, uh, that seems like a good segue perhaps, into well the 2020 election. How should we apply the lessons of your study in thinking about? This Latino vote, the sleeping giant, uh, this time out. And I think, you know, something that sort of prompts this question is a recent story in the New Yorker about the illustrative case of Florida, which is always a swing state, but now even more so given the disparate Latino voting communities there Cuban, Venezuelan, Colombian, Puerto Rican, a, and a, a real diverse mix of, of people. So, how do you think about the 2020 election now in these terms?
5: Well,
0: you know, it's still quite early, as many months as we've been listening to some of this stuff. But I think some of the lessons from the past revolve around thinking about how the different parties have different needs with respect to Latino voters. For Republicans, it seems clear that the president, Donald Trump, doesn't need to speak to the Latino vote in California or New York, for example. That's not going to be part of the strategy. For Republicans, the Hispanic appeal has never been about winning over the majority, but it's always been about winning enough and in the right places of Latino voters. Uh, Nixon and George H.W. Bush had the goal of turning Texas into a Republican stronghold through the cultivation of the middle class Mexican-American. And to some degree, that was a big piece of the puzzle. Florida will be a different thing. We've seen from the Trump campaign a heavy emphasis on denouncing socialism in Latin America and in the Democratic Party and trying to sort of pair those things, praising uh, free markets at home and promising intervention in Latin America, which was a formula that Reagan personified and that married a generation of Florida Cubans to the Republican Party. Um, Democrats always have a heavier lift in many respects because that is they have to balance the support of pretty significantly liberal Mexican-American and Puerto Rican constituencies in California and New York, and to a degree in like Illinois. I have to give them what they need to feel like they are helping set the party's agenda. They also have to balance those expectations against what um, everyone feels African-Americans, attention to African-American concerns. And this is not something that Republicans have to worry about. But they also have to recognize that the arguments made to satisfy Mexican-Americans in California and Puerto Ricans in New York, for example, won't necessarily be the decisive ones elsewhere. Florida is a sort of case in point. The need to always speak in multiple voices and to have targeted messages is something that we saw as early as the 1970s, where presidential campaigns knew that they had to have representatives from the individual national origin communities to speak to them in their own and sometimes actually in their own versions of Spanish, but also speak to them to the issues that matter. I mean it's it's some people, most people maybe know this, but it's you know, Puerto Ricans have US citizenship. And it has never been the case that Democrats should have automatically assumed that abuses of Mexican people or Central Americans at the southern border would somehow automatically catalyze Puerto Rican voter turnout in New York or Orlando, for example. I also think that one of the lessons that we've learned going back to the earliest moments in Latino politics is, is really about not simply speaking to Latino voters as Latinos, but as people who are uh, and, and connected to other Latinos around the country, that is not simply speaking to them as members of national blocs, but rather as members of local communities that themselves often contain multiple Latino populations living in close proximity to other minorities and working people who are eager to have a a voice in the system. That is, uh, you can look at building a national Latino vote, or you can look at building lots of local multiracial coalitions around common concerns of the grassroots, schools, healthcare, policing, streetlights, childcare, whatever it may be. And that to the extent that those kinds of messages and local relationships can be cast as reflecting Latino values and core interests. Well, that's that's a valuable thing. But the the sort of the intimate, the ground floor, multiracial organizing that is taking place in some places seems to harken back to a very effective period in Latino politics.
1: Thanks. Benjamin Francis Fallon's book is The Rise of the Latino Vote, and it's from Harvard University Press. Uh, Ben, I want to thank you very much for spending time with us today.
0: Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you so much.
1: The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.